Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Cisco has a warmable vulnerability in their firewall appliances, crimeware that allows unlimited ATM withdrawals, and the big problem with Java's installer, plus some great questions, our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 253 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 11th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. You know, we were just talking about the Linux Hotel, which I didn't mm-hmm. even know was a thing, linuxhotel.de, before mm-hmm. the show, uh, where, despite the name, free BSD people will be doing hacking soon. So, yes. and, you, uh, you know, they have a giant list of projects that have done things there before, and we're not the first BSD there, and hmm. they had one of these uh, last year, but... I was not available then. Well, isn't that interesting? A hotel. Uh, the whole thing is pretty fascinating if you guys want to check yep. it out, linuxhotel.de. So, Alan, I'm looking on my screen right here. We've got a lot of things to cover today. Mm-hmm. But this one has a big critical circle on it. With, and it's red right. and it's got my attention and it has the name Cisco. So I'm thinking that's probably where we're going to start today. Tell yep. me about this. So Cisco's ASAs, which is their Adaptive Security Appliance, uh, have a critical v- vulnerability in the IPsec stack, which is used for VPNs, uh, and it has gotten the highest possible CVSS score of 10 Aye. because of how easily it's exploited. It doesn't require any authentication, and it's wormable, meaning that if you infect one of the routers, you can then use it to infect more, and it will just spread. Ah. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, so uh, Cisco has released a patch for the critical vulnerability. Uh, this is the Cisco ASA Adaptive Security Appliance is an IP router that acts as an application-aware firewall, network antivirus, intrusion prevention system, and virtual private network server. Fancy. It is advertised as the industry's most deployed staple firewall. It's basically the successor to the old Cisco PIX firewalls. Mm-hmm. That, right. Uh, and so, yes, there are millions of them. And they're all vulnerable. Uh, when deployed as a VPN, the device is accessible from the internet and provides access to the company's internal network. Right? It's a firewall, so it's going to be the device that's not behind the firewall, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's going to be hanging out on the edge of everybody's network. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say uh, a vulnerability in the Internet Key Exchange, or IKE, I-K-E uh, version 1 and version 2 uh, code in the Cisco ASA software could allow an unauthenticated remote attacker to cause a reload of the affected system or to gain remote execution of code. So they can basically reboot your firewall if they don't do a good job, or if they do a good job, run whatever code they want on your firewall. Yeah. Which is bad. Wow. (laughs) Um, The vulnerability is due to a buffer overflow in the affected code area. An attacker could exploit this vulnerability by sending a single crafted UDP packet to the affected system. No. Uh, an exploit could uh, allow the attacker to execute arbitrary code and obtain full control of the system or to cause a reload of the affected system. No, a single UDP packet? Well, to do much, you'd probably need more than one. But yes, you can, you can basically remote reboot people's ASAs with a single packet. That are sitting on the edge of their networks because they're yes. firewalls. And well, also that would mean that everything behind it yeah. would lose internet until it finished rebooting. Yeah, and any, any, any external request you're, re- you're responding to would also not get answered. Yes, and it would lose this whole state table, so any open connections would be closed. <laughs> That's uh, bad. But if you just flooded their IP with it, you would just completely disable their network mm-hmm. and everything behind it. Talk uh, about so tracking that one down. Yeah. Uh, and yes, since the routers can be owned by a single UDP packet uh, and then become controlled by the attacker, they can then be used to spread the worm. And on top of you know these being on the edge of the network and so on, it also means that they happen to, you know, a lot of these are deployed on relatively high-speed internet connections. Mm-hmm. So taking over all of these and just using them to do a denial of service attack would be one thing. So this uh, is what enterprise grade means. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the researchers have a whole explanation of how it works and basically, you know, making really small packets and the, it's basically in the uh, reassembly code, uh, because, because you're doing a VPN, the packet size is inside the VPN 
inside the tunnel could be larger than what you're allowed to send on the internet. Uh, you know, you normally your interface is already, you know, it, the default ethernet is 1500 bytes. And then for IP, we have a little bit less for the ethernet header and so on. And so by the time you add a couple of layers of tunnel, you could be, your physical packet size could end up being slightly smaller. And so you have to break up every packet into smaller ones. And so the Cisco one, the code that puts them back together can be tricked into doing it wrong and letting you leak data from the packets you're sending into memory and then execute it. And that's why the researchers dubbed the attack execute my packet. Mm. Uh, effective devices include the Cisco ASA 5500, uh, the 5500-X series of next generation firewalls, the uh, ASA service module for the Catalyst 6500 series switches and Cisco's 7600 series routers, the ASA 1000V cloud firewall, as well as the Cisco Adaptive Security Virtual Appliance, or ASAV, which is basically a VM running the ASA software, mm. uh, and also the Cisco Firepower 9300 ASA security module. And the, uh, I love this one, the Cisco ISA 3000 Industrial Security Appliance. <laughs> well, if it's industrial, it must be fine. Well, it's uh, probably more likely it's meant to protect your industrial control systems, uh-huh. right? Yeah. All those crazy things. Um, if you're using older ASA software like uh, version 7.x or 8. you know, almost everything, you'll be forced to upgrade to 9.1 to get the fix. Although I think they have a patch for 8.5 and 9.0. Uh, it's for the same. All the old versions have to upgrade, but there's a couple of versions in the middle where you don't have to upgrade. They've released a newer version. But some new, some versions even newer than that, you still are forced to upgrade. It's very strange. And there's one version in the middle that's apparently not vulnerable. Hmm. And there's no like workaround either. You can't not upgrade. There's no workaround right. if you don't want to upgrade. Uh, if you don't have the VPN server part turned on, I think you're not vulnerable, mm. but no. yeah. you kind of want to upgrade anyway. Uh, so hopefully you have that support contract still. Because, <laughs> you know, Cisco's whole thing is that uh, if you cancel support contract and decide you want it back, say, get this update, you got to pay, pay up that cap. For all of yeah. the time that you missed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to buy, buy that gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's enterprise grade. You know, we're going we're gonna to upset somebody. But, I mean, this really, it shows you yeah. that it doesn't matter how what the price tag is. Uh, a single UDP packet, huh? Yep. <laughs> uh, so the algorithm for reassembling Ike payloads fragmented with the Cisco fragmentation protocol which I love how Cisco invented their own protocol for this, and that's where the bug resides, um, contains a bounds checking flaw that allows a heap buffer to be overflowed with attacker-controlled data. Hmm. Uh, apparently, Cisco has released this update for free, which would be good. Yeah. Uh, attempts to exploit this can be detected with packet inspection. Uh, so if you have a firewall in front of your ASA, you might be able to block this. <laughs> good. Uh, if you look for the... Uh, Value of the length field of the fragment payload with type 132 of the Ike uh, packet. And that allows you to see if the length field has a value less than 8, it pretty much would only ever be an attempt to exploit this vulnerability. So uh, once it's fixed, you, can, you could probably get some stats to see how many people have tried to exploit it and so on. Hmm. Uh, you could, just, you could throw like a link system in front of your uh, your Cisco just for a couple of days until the patch is ready for your. Well, uh, I don't. A link system wouldn't be able to inspect. I'm just, like, I'm like, just kidding. Yes. It's just making a joke about blocking the port. Yes, but uh, once you're uh, once you've um, installed the update, you can have something monitor traffic and see anybody attempting to exploit this and deal with it or whatever. Uh, but yeah, if you see an Ike packet with the fragment payload where the length value is less than eight, then it's definitely a attempt to exploit this although say detection uh, can also be a problem because a single ike packet can actually contain two payloads or more than one payload sure and so the one with the uh fragment less than eight could be the second or third one in the packet oh in order to hide from the most basic ways to detect it Mm -hmm. right so if you if you set up something to block all of these packets with a value less than eight say leaving your network so in case you have any compromised asas on your network that they don't infect anybody else um, you have to actually break down the packet and look at all of it not just the first one because they could hide it in the second one in order to trick your filter but if you want all the details going all the way down to like a disassembly of the code uh, Exodus Intel has their blog post about it 
Yeah, right, uh, good blog post it is. Sands, the Sands Institute has their coverage on it. Uh, they say they saw a very large increase in traffic on port 500 UDP, which is mm-hmm. how you set up an uh, IPsec thing. Uh, and uh, they show you how to use their monitoring thing to take a look at the change over time in this. And it uh, definitely looks like it might be exploited <laughs> in the wild at the moment. Yeah, look at that spike. <laughs> Boing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody's definitely scanning for this. Yeah. Yeah, I guess once you know about it, right? Yep. Well, at least Cisco's uh, uh, jumping up to the plate pretty quick on this one. But talk about, woof. That's just as. Well, I'm not sure about that, actually. Um, yeah? Looks like the original post from the authors was going to be a couple of weeks ago. But they waited for the Cisco patch. Uh-huh. Yeah, not too surprising. Not too surprising. <clears throat> yep. So I don't know if that was the original disclosure date and they bumped it back to give Cisco more time or if that's when they found it. But anyway. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that one? Uh, nope, that's it for that one. Okay, Alan, let me tell you about our friends at iX Systems. You know about iX Systems. Go to iXSystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you'll find their ultimate guide to buying a new server for an open source deployment to help grease the wheels up the chain. Check them out at ixsystems.com. They have a lot of really great rigs from something you could use from a small business all the way up to the incredibly top-end stuff powered by these Intel processors that are really, really efficient and fast. From the Atoms all the way up to the Xeons. It's a sweet yes, setup. And, all those Intel processors. And, of course, you know what's great is iX is able to bring it all together with a certain level of expertise that most people can't even dream of, not to mention combine it with the rest of the team. And that's their secret sauce. Well, the other big thing is just being able to get the stuff early. Like the Skylake stuff is pretty new, and a lot of vendors don't have it yet or haven't built it yet. And but hmm. when I called IX, it's like, well, I really want Skylake so I get the slightly faster GPU. And they're like, yep, we can do that. And that's nice. Right now, I would be holding a server up so you guys could see it. It <laughs> arrived today. Yeah. But it's currently being worked on. Uh, Installing software and getting it working. Well, there you Maybe go. Maybe next week I'll be able to pull it out of the rack before the show and be able to show Ooh. you how nicely uh, laid out the server is. Server it's like all even the you know even the little cables for like the buttons on the front and like all the little lights are all zip tied in and like cut to length SATA cables and it's just they do such a nice job. In the meantime, you could read about uh, Ben Daly who deployed a 36 gigabyte. Free NAS terabyte, 36, 36 terabyte, not gigabyte, 36 terabyte free NAS system at a public school as a backup solution. Isn't that neat? They're featuring that as part of the mission complete best stories. Yes, well, the best block. part of that story is that when they uh, looked at buying it from another vendor, the cheapest option was $48,000. Yeah, so they managed to save about, oh, $36,000. That's pretty cool. That's, that's, that's quite a big savings. Yeah, yeah, that is really cool. And now they got, uh, look at that, they're rocking ZFS on that 36 terabyte system. Yep. That's pretty cool. You can find out more at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out the IX Systems blog for the mission complete. And when you're ready to deploy some hardware, if you want to call them too, which is always a, a really good experience, uh, just mention the TechSnap program if you would. That helps us out. ixsystems.com slash techsnap and see why Alan and I would only deploy their hardware. Yes. So uh, The other thing I love now is with the Skylake. The E3 processors can now take up to 64 gigs of RAM, where before it was Ooh, only 32. I can only dream of that. So right if, if you wanted more than 32, you had to buy like a, a, the E5 Xeons, but now you can go up to 64 okay. with right. the uh, E3s. And then they have the Xeon Ds that can go up to like 128. Oh! <laughs> All right. So All right. you're not forced to go to the bigger like dual processor using a lot more power type systems just to get the amount of RAM you need now. So can yeah. I? So can I uh, like on a storage server, you don't need that much CPU usually, right? Right. It's just storing. Yeah. You need a Boy. little bit to do your compression or something, but really, it's just pushing bits. I could dream it, Alan. I can dream. So maybe, maybe one of the ways, one of these days, I'll buy myself a desktop with 128 gigabytes of RAM. Is this a clever bank hack? Yeah, that could work. <laughs> <laughs> clever bank hack that uh, hack that allows crooks to make unlimited ATM. Withdrawals. Yes. Uh, Sally, for this one, it, you're not only hacking the ATM. You have to basically have hacked the bank first. Surprise. Surprise. Yes. So this is the Mattel, not like the... Uh, not the toys. Not, not like the Barbie, Yeah. But yeah. not yeah. like metal either. M-E-T-E-L, uh, where I think the Barbie is two Ts or something. Anyway, uh, the Mattel Crimeware allows unlimited ATM withdrawals. Love it. So this is an advanced persistent threat-like Crimeware package that's been found in the wild and being used to drain ATMs and bank accounts. Um, the type of attack was previously pretty much exclusive territory of nation states, right? Breaking into a place, spending a bunch of time doing the surveillance, figure out how everything works, 
and then go for the throat only when you know it's the right time uh usually you know cyber criminals like well it's much easier to just target the you know grandma's computer Mm. and and capture her login and steal her her money yeah but if you want a lot of money uh you kind of got to go for the whole bank right yeah yeah Um, unless grandma's really really rich Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, and that's why uh, there was, what was it? The, the Zeus Trojan was targeting people in Europe, but only if they had the mm, right. auth card scanner. Uh, right. It was only targeting those people because you didn't have one of those unless you had enough money to bother. Mm-hmm. Um, but this new Mattel uh, crimeware pack contains more than 30 separate modules that can be tailored uh, to the computers it's infecting. Uh, one of the most powerful components automatically rolls back ATM transactions shortly after they're made. As a result, people with payment cards from a compromised bank can withdraw nearly unlimited sums of money from ATMs belonging to another bank. So when the um, transaction comes in and you take the money out of the account, the malware just puts the money back. So the account doesn't run out of money and you don't run over the daily limit of withdrawals for that account. Uh, So the other good thing is that the customer doesn't lose any money, just the ATM does. Right. Um, it's free money. What could go yeah. wrong? Because the Mattel module uh, repeatedly resets card balances, criminals never pass the thresholds that would normally freeze the card. Last year, the rollback scheme caused an unnamed bank in Russia to lose uh, millions of rubles in a single night. Mm. Because instead of you know working at this slowly, they got everything in place, got it all set up, and then just drained every ATM they could find. Right. Uh, so that when the people from the bank came in in the morning, like, oh my god, what happened? <laughs> Uh, so Metal uh, usually gains an initial foothold by exploiting vulnerabilities in browsers or through spear phishing emails that trick employees into executing malicious files. Mm. Uh, members of the Mattel hacking gang then use legitimate software used by server administrators and security researchers like you know VNC, PuTTY, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, to compromise those PCs and attempt to further burrow into targeted uh, systems. Um, they will often uh, patiently work this way until they gain control over a system with access to money transactions. For example, PCs used by call center operators or IT support. Right? If you get into their Active Directory controller, you can do a lot. Or if you just find a system that is used by the people, well, you know, some older people still like to do their banking over the phone mm-hmm. because it's more secure than on the computer. But all you're doing is calling the bank and having someone at a computer at the bank type it into the website for you. Sure, yeah. And so if you take over that computer, you now have access to drain all the money. Or in this case, inject some malware that will keep resetting the balance. They say uh, Metal illustrates a growing sophistication of hackers targeting banks. It wasn't long ago that reconnaissance, social engineering, state-of-the-art software engineering, lateral movement through the network, and (laughs) long-term persistence were largely the exclusive hallmarks of so-called advanced persistent threat actors uh, that painstakingly hacked high-profile targets, usually on behalf of a government or a spy agency. Uh, Hackers targeting financial institutions, by contrast, took a more opportunistic approach that infected the easiest targets and didn't bother with the more challenging ones. Uh, more sophisticated techniques are increasingly a part of financially motivated hacking crimes. Uh, they, uh, Kaspersky Report also has two other groups that they found. Uh, the one called GC Man. Uh, apparently, they named it just because they used GCC to compile their malware, which seems like a vague thing. It's like, wouldn't like half of all yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah, okay. I guess most of it's compiled for Windows, so they don't use GCC, but. Still, yeah, yeah still, though. Yeah, you know, with MingWin or whatever, you can compile Windows binaries with GCC. So, you know, someone should do it with Clang and then it'll be better. (laughs) Yeah, that would be. Anyway, um, they say that its members uh, got an initial foothold into financial institutions using spear phishing emails. uh, And then from there, use widely available tools like PuTTY, VNC, and uh, Metrpreter, or Metainterpreter, to broaden their access in the network. In one case, GCCM members had access to one targeted network for 18 months before they actually stole any money. Uh, when the group finally sprang into action, they used automated scripts to slowly transfer funds at a rate of about $200 per minute into uh, accounts of so-called mules that would then go and withdraw the money. Hmm. So they, Being willing to wait for 18 months seems extremely ballsy and, and, yeah, and risky. Yeah, there's always the risk you're going to get caught and then just... Yeah. And then you before know, you've even got a chance should, to make a buck, they've traced, they've traced it back to you and shut your whole operation down. Or, yeah, at least locked you out. You have to uh, have a pretty high level of confidence to wait 18 months after you've compromised a bank, right? Yeah. Uh, 
or you know, if you're the Russian mafia and you don't necessarily need the money right away, I suppose. So you just you just do a scatter shot infection and whoever you have down the road you just pick off as you get to them, maybe? Well, I guess it's more you know, we could take some money right now, but if we want to get a large amount of money, we're gonna to have to work at this a while mm. and figure out exactly how we can get the script in there to steal the two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. You know. Because as soon as it starts running, you know, if you do a test, that increases your chance of getting caught. Mm-hmm. So you have to be sure without actually being able to test that everything's going to work. Right. Yeah. That's pretty but brave. Yeah, when, when, after that long, you're like, what if a year ago they figured out we were inside and we were all in a honeypot this whole time so they could figure out where we are or something? But Talk sorry. about being willing to, to as, a, as a group, being willing to wait for something to pay off for an extremely long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, again, you know, if it's something slightly more like organized crime, yeah. then you're getting a paycheck the whole time. Probably, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because you're not actually going to get the money that comes out of this. Mm-hmm. You're just getting paid to do the work. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, this is what they're noticing is all of a sudden these guys are, are, are acting this way rather than just smashing you know, the ATM. Crap. Yeah. yeah. The uh, Carbonac 2 malware, which is one of the recent cases used to access uh, financial institutions to change ownership information for a large company. The records were modified to list a money mule as one of the shareholders. Uh, after attacking a variety of banks last year, the gang took a five-month sabbatical and conspiracy thought they might have disbanded. But mm. in December, they confirmed the group was still active and overhauled its malware and was now targeting a new class of victims. Mm. But that's an interesting attack is I go into the bank's records and add someone as a shareholder in the company who has the authority to, say, drain the bank account or whatever. Yeah. Can you imagine? uh, You can imagine doing that on, like, a mortgage and just changing who owns a house. Yeah. But changing who owns a big company? (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of amazing. That is kind of amazing, and it seems so sly. Like, just change all the records? It almost seems too easy in a way. Well, you know, in... I don't know how it is in Russia, but obviously in Canada, the government has a record and the bank has a record. And there's, you know, obviously, you could trick the bank enough to probably steal a bunch of money, but then uh, the company would be able to prove that the bank was, you know, didn't do enough checking or something and probably be okay. But most of the laws in North America that protect uh, you from fraud by the bank only protect you as a consumer, not as a company. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so especially researchers said that uh, all three groups appear to be active and uh, are known to have collectively infected at least 29 banks in Russia. Uh, the research said they suspect the number of institutions hit is actually much higher, but the banks don't want to talk about it because, you know, you want to be the bank that didn't get hacked. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're not going to go bragging. <laughs> hey, guess what? We got hacked by Russians, everybody. <laughs> uh, come bring your accounts over here. We got great checking rates. <laughs> well, in this... Uh, the interesting thing in this case is that all the banks are Russian as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is slightly interesting. You know, oftentimes we've seen the Russian organized crime uh, or the Eastern European organized crime go after Western Europe. Right. Um, you know, it seems like the you're less likely to get the protection of your government in doing this if you're stealing from, you know, the country you're from. I'm reading uh, the post here. They did this live up on stage, it looks like, too. Yes, they presented some of this at a recent conference, the yeah. SATS 2016. Yeah. Oh, Kaspersky. <clears throat> Man, I could only imagine if I, was, if I was working at a bank and this started happening at the bank I worked at. Yep. They would be losing their stuff. <laughs> so you got a couple of different posts here from Kaspersky. Yep. Uh, uh, the, the last one actually includes the uh, indicators of infection. So uh, if you work at a bank, here's a list of things, uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah, good. websites and so on that they saw right. so that you can uh, try to help defend your bank. Yeah, that's nice, too. That's nice, too. All right, Mr. Judy, any other thoughts on that particularly interesting story? Not, and one we've all probably looked at. The, we've all looked at that kid in Terminator 2 who accessed the ATM and gone, man, I'd love to be able to do that. <laughs> yes, well, we've seen, uh, you know, ones where they put malware in the ATM in order to yeah. get the ATM to spit yeah. out money without ever talking to the bank. In this case, they actually convinced the bank to undo the transactions after the money was – That's the really clever part. And that way the customers of the bank are never really tipped to the whole problem because their accounts look fine. Yeah. Um, It's pretty clever. And the the patience. The patience. 
it honestly seems like it would have been a much easier to target the physical ATMs. Mm-hmm. But I guess in order to be alone with an ATM long enough to install malware, that includes uh, increases the risk. And then either, you know, you don't want your very best technical guy going out to the ATM to do it because in case they get caught. Right. But you can't trust the dumb mules to do it because they don't know anything about computers. Uh, whereas in this case, they could just, you know, you could walk up to an ATM in a busy store and withdraw some money and walk away and nobody's yeah. going to notice anything, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you could do a whole bunch of different ATMs and if you're covering up at the bank level. <clears throat> Fascinating. Man, that is really some interesting stuff. And, you know, like uh, somebody in the chat room was saying is like a lot of these things are just not super secure at the at the end point. Well, we think about that all the time, but the bank isn't always that secure either. Like changing the records can be yeah. done. All right. Well, let me tell you about something else that I am actually just thrilled about. That's my mobile service because it's not like anybody else's mobile service, and I'm sick of the way everybody else does it. They need to do it like Ting because Ting is on a mobile to make it very simple. Just make it make sense. It's just $6 for a line. That's it. So if you want to have 10 lines, it's $6 a line. It's not like, well, you have your baseline, and then when you want to add a line, that's $20, and then you need to join that minute pool plan. None of this complicated stuff. $6, you pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add that up. Whatever that is at the end of the month, that's your bill. So on average, like I think on average for me, mine's around thirty bucks, thirty-five bucks for three phones, right? But on average, uh, twenty-three dollars is the average monthly bill per device. TechSnap.ting.com. TechSnap.ting.com is where you go to support the show and get a twenty-five dollar discount off your first device. Or if you have a compatible device, and you might, because they've got a couple of networks. They have CDMA and GSM. They'll give you $25 in service credit, and that might just pay for more than your first month of service for that line. They have all the phones, from function phones all the way up to, or feature phones, I guess, all the way up to the smartphones, and they got a great dashboard to manage all of it. I want you to check out Ting right now, techsnap.ting.com, and go there and try out that savings calculator. It's right there on the front page. You just click, how much would I save? Put in your actual usage in there, and then they'll do the calculation for you, see if Ting's a good fit. You might be surprised how much you'd save. I save about $2,000 every two years. You can check out their blog. They have a great blog where they're constantly posting things relevant to your interests. I like this one. Uh, Jesse Sims just posted over on the Ting blog his month with the Nexus 5X. I've been like kind of trying to decide if I go to an Android phone again, would the 5X or the 6P be the way to go? And uh, the 5X, you know, I kind of like some of the aspects of it a lot. And it's a great price. That's the other thing I like about it. You can buy it right from Ting. Unlocked. All the phones are unlocked. No contract. So they got a review up. It's a really detailed review with some nice pictures. You can check that out. Also, check out the Ting shop. See what some of the device costs are. You might be really impressed. You could just get a SIM card. So many great options. You only pay for what you use. Great customer service. A really good dashboard that allows you to manage all aspects of your account. You can even turn a device line completely off. No add-on charges for anything, like if you want to tether or use Hotspot. It's just a feature in the OS. You just turn it on and tings Honey Badger about it. They don't care. And you move all of that, and then you, you keep all of that, and you get a great app to manage it all from your phone, too. It's really cool service. And if you ever get stuck, their customer service will stick with you. It's really great. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there right now, support the show, learn a little bit more about Ting, and maybe consider switching. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com. I took their Netgear Zing with me down to my trip to scale, and I maintain one of the things I like about it as somebody who's just a little paranoid is Mm -hmm. the Zing has a uh, touchscreen, LCD or OLED screen right on it. And you can turn it on, and you can immediately see the MAC addresses and devices right on the touchscreen that are connected to your MiFi access uh-huh. point. I like that a lot because mm-hmm. you never know if somebody's trying to connect. And so it's just right there. You don't have to go to like some weird, bad, badly written web page with some really bad password security and log into it and then go to like some bad section on the website in this slow embedded web browser. It's just right there on the touchscreen. And uh, when I don't need it, I just turn it off at, on my Ting control panel, techsnap.ting.com. So we have a story about our old friend, Java, uh, the Java installer, actually. Yes. A little more off in the weeds this time. What's going on? Yeah. So the Java installer is actually vulnerable to a a binary planting bug. So it turns out, like many installers, uh, what the Java installer does is, you know, you download it into your downloads directory from your browser, and then you run it. And it you know, uh, usually now with Java, it's, it's a tiny little binary that then actually goes and downloads yeah. some files. Yep. Some of those files happen to be, say, DLL files that uh, mm-hmm. provide the functionality, and then it loads those and runs them. 
Well, if someone happens to have planted a DLL with the right name in the directory first, Java will be like, oh, goody, it's already there. Let me just run it. Oh, because then it saves having to download. So it's yes. doing you a favor. Well, the thing is, you know, when you start up the Java down, the Java installer, and the Java installer is like, hey, and you get the Windows pop-up. It's like, oh, the, it's okay. You can trust this application. It's signed by Oracle. It's all good. So you let it run with administrative privileges, and now it loads some malware with administrative privileges without giving you the option to not. Whereas if you just ran the malware, you would get be like, oh, this binary yeah. from some nobody yep. that's not signed and shouldn't be trusted, uh, you, you want to run this as root? It's like, no. Right, so it's actually way worse because it's already got the, the installer already has all the authorization it needs. Yeah, because, well, it, it successfully asked the user for it and right? gets it because it is signed, yeah. So yeah, on, on Friday, Oracle published a security advisory recommending that users delete all of the Java installers that have accumulated in their downloads directory. I checked on mine. There were 12. Oh, uh, really? Well, because I always download the update manually and don't use their little updater app because mm-hmm. I kill it with fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so they recommend you delete all of the Java installers and then grab the fresh one for Java 6 update 113, Java 7 update 97, or Java 8, update 73. Those update numbers are getting awfully high. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, see, uh, on most computers, the default download folder quickly becomes a repository of old and unorganized files that mm-hmm. were opened once and then forgotten about. So this recently fixed flaw in the Java installer highlights why keeping that folder clean can be important. Yeah, I never Although really thought about it. I often don't want to get rid of the stuff, so I've taken to archiving it by month. Oh. So I create... There's a year folder and inside a month in folder. In case you need to roll I back. Just, yeah, or in case I just want the thing again, it's like, why download it again? Yeah. Especially, but usually, like, within the week of downloading something, like I often refer to it like six times. Yeah. For very, especially, like, if it's a .zip file containing some code or something. Yep, yep. Uh, and so, yeah, when stuff gets old, I just go in there, grab everything that's got a modified date of last month and throw it in the last month folder uh, or two or three months ago and so on. They say, uh, the reason is that the old Java installers are designed to look for and automatically load a number of specifically named dynamic link libraries, or DLLs, files from the current directory. Uh, In the case of Java installers downloaded from the web, the current directory is typically the computer's default download directory. So if you you went to another malicious website and it tricked you into downloading the file and then you run the Java installer, boom. Ah, so this is this allows an attacker to plant their own malicious binaries on your computer, and sure. then when the trusted Java installer runs with enhanced privileges, that DLL gains those enhanced permissions. Uh, to be successfully exploited, this vulnerability requires that an unsuspecting user be tricked into visiting a malicious website which downloads the file. Specifically, they mentioned you know, in some cases, the download starts automatically without the prompt or whatever, and so you know it. It doesn't necessarily require the user to click a bunch of things in order for this to happen. No, you usually just run it, authorize it, and it starts. Right, but like, um, if you go to the malicious website, it could download the DLL uh, without actually ever popping up a prompt. Gotcha. By setting certain headers and so on. Uh, Say, so, uh, though relatively complex to exploit, this vulnerability may result if successfully exploited in a complete compromise of an unsuspecting user system. Because, you know, normally things you download aren't run with high privileges, but because the Java installer is getting permission like normally if you download a bad thing and you try to run it you're going to get the pop-up from windows saying hey this is from the internet we don't trust it uh do you trust the manufacturer and when it's nobody then you don't when it's oracle you do whatever yeah that's how it's supposed to work anyway most yeah. people just click okay yeah but. yes uh, so it's not clear exactly what oracle did to improve their downloader if it checks for signatures on the file or if it just creates a subdirectory and does everything in there to avoid the yeah. pollution. But mm-hmm. I bet you that's what they did. Yeah, I'm guessing it's like a small workaround for this rather than actually re-architecting the way their installer works. Yeah, make a new folder, so just probably re-download not as everything. Good as it, yeah, it's probably not as good as it should be. <laughs> That'll shut them up. <laughs> uh, so many other downloaders probably have similar issues. But, you know, without having an install base like Java, it's much less of a target. Right? Is Acrobat installed this way? I don't really install software super often on Windows anymore, right. so I can't but remember. I, I was thinking more slightly less popular software, where it's not going to be on enough computers that an exploit is going to be very useful for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, like you said, Oracle and Adobe Acrobat, yeah. that probably makes a lot of sense. Also, uh, you know, this is like kind of how Creative Cloud works, too. Creative mm-hmm. Cloud, you know, downloads that uses an installer that downloads the files from Adobe servers and then runs the local installation. 
Uh, there's probably enough people on Creative Cloud. Yep. That's... Uh, and then the other thing the article points out is that for a lot of less sophisticated users, uh, when you go into your browser and you see your download history and you click the little clear button and it, all the things disappear off the list, some of them probably think that those files are gone now. Oh, right. Yeah, you of course. go into the download directory, they're not, right? All you're doing is clearing the history of downloading that. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, you're not actually getting rid of any files. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so even if you think you're clearing your download directory, you probably aren't. Wait, well... You know, I, I bet I bet not all installers that download stuff off the web would just reuse a DLL if it was there, but I bet some yeah, do it that way. Them, but yeah. I bet, I bet well, some there's some particular, others. In particular, Oracle, you're not downloading the installer. You're downloading the web thing that's going to download the installer and run it. Right, right, yeah. I've that's, never liked that approach. Yeah, I because, don't either. Because you can't just save it to a USB stick and then use it 100 times. Right, you got to go, if they even have it, you got to go find specifically the offline installer or network installation edition which is like the like is like the, the most backwards way to say that the network yep. installation edition is the one that's actually the full complete install well yeah so you can put it on a network file share oh. okay all right okay sure thanks yeah all right. it should really be called the sysadmin friendly edition right yeah yeah save the ban- save bandwidth edition because uh, i know it's um adobe tries to hide that page for flash like, mm-hmm. they move it and change the number all the time. And oh, yeah. There's a big warning saying, we're not going to even publish this anymore because people keep downloading it this way instead of using our installer. It's like, get your installer. There's Microsoft there. updaters that are that way, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on that guy? Uh, if, it just reminds me of uh, some of the popular software. You would buy this software to write installers, like Install Shield and a couple other similar ones. Yeah. And at one point, each of them was having their own, not App Store, but uh, Update Tracker. Where then it like install Shield or install Wizard Hated would that. track all the applications you've installed with that installer, and would provide you updates for it, which is oh, kind of okay. But then you end up with like eight different icons in your uh, sysfray running all the time, and then off, popping up every time. Constantly telling you there's an update. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it led to update update fatigue for a while. Yeah, uh, and it's all kinds of terrible. All right, Mr. Julie, if you buy something that's not terrible at all, something that's actually just fantastic, that's DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word, lowercase, and it'll give you a $10 credit to try out DigitalOcean's $5 rig two months for free or any of their services and just apply a $10 credit. And they'll charge hour. They can do hourly. So if you just want to try like you know a really, really high-end rig for a couple of hours, you're gonna, you can do that for a while with a $10 credit. So go to DigitalOcean and try them out. Linux infrastructure, free BSD infrastructure. On demand. You can start in less than 55 seconds and pricing for $5. For $5, like less than a burger, right? 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and Toronto. They have a really good, good, great, fantastic, wonderful, amazing interface. I mean, it's all of those things combined into like some sort of word that doesn't exist. It is that good. And one of the reasons I say that is because they have broken through this horrible UI quagmire we have been in for virtualization since virtualization was a thing. And they've managed to not only make it really easy to use, but still very powerful and capable of managing multiple machines at once or just one. And I love their base images where you can deploy a machine with an entire software stack that's just getting updated from standard repos using standard open source software, nothing weird about it, and it gets you up and going in no time. It's really blazing fast. You combine that with our all-SSD infrastructure and our $10 credit with SnapOcean, and you could really go do something pretty amazing. So not only do they have one-click deployments of entire application stacks that make you get up and going on your server in no time. Say you want Ubuntu LTS and Nginx and, like, I, in my case, I want a Docker. That's one click. I have all of that up to date, ready to go, and I can get working. It was very, very nice. Backups, very easy. All of that, simple over at DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean and try it. And while you're there, look at the community section. They have uh, a couple of new guides up that they're highlighting. Uh, package management basics for apt, yum, DNF, and PKG. How about that? Mm-hmm. Very cool. I love that they do this because these are really great great tutorials with professionals who are editing them. It's really nice. Uh, and it's a nice way to sort of sum up all the different package managers and a great introduction to that if you're new. They have a bunch of good stuff at DigitalOcean, and you can get started by using that promo code SNAPOcean. You just apply it to your account, and you'll get the $10 credit. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Mm-hmm. 
I loves it. Alan, tell me about the state of BSD, episode, wait, let me guess, 128. Sure. BSD now is at 128. A nice number. I like the 128. That's a good number. It's half of 256. Yep, yep. So this is an interview, right? The state of BSD is... uh, Yes, we have an interview uh, with the guy that works for the network that runs the state of Ohio. Yeah, that's right. And so the state of Ohio's network. And uh, so he talks about how he uses FreeBSD to manage... An entire the entire network for all of the public government stuff. Badical. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Check it's that out on dot com. You can go get that download started right now because we're about the halfway point. So I will get the yep. HD version so that way you get all of Alan, all of Alan in the BSD Now program, and also Chris Moore. So yeah. go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and grab that. Yeah, I would say I'm usually only about a third of the show because I'm half the screen during certain parts <laughs> and only like. You know, like a oh, Al, you're always the all of the, the show. <laughs> it's 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 a good show, and it's Alan's local camera. So yes. there you go, local. It camera. is slightly more HD than this. Yeah, uh, slightly. The, 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 the HD is reverse. See, on this on this show, my side is slightly more HD, and on the other show, it's reverse. Your side is slightly yes. more HD. All right. Well, that's all the news for the top of the show. So let's go do the tech snap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or starting a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And John sends in our first email, which I bet is kind of a common question or something along these lines. John writes, I have a spare Raspberry Pi 2 that I would like to run and turn into a proxy server. I want it to be available to all clients on my Soho network. I'm leaning towards Squid. Are there any performance limitations I should be concerned with by using the Pi 2? Thanks, John. Uh, well, the biggest performance impact will be how fast is the disk that you're going to store the cache on. Mm-hmm. Probably not very fast because what do you have? The internal flash, which is super slow, or a USB hard drive, which is moderately slow? Would there be, and with limited RAM, you're not going to With really limited RAM, you're not going to keep much, you know, in RAM. So yeah. it'll work if you're after saving bandwidth. It's not necessarily going to make things that much faster. Uh, but, yeah. you know, an external USB hard drive can do 20 megabytes a second and your internet connection can't. So, yeah, that's a good you know. way to look at it. And I suppose even if it was a small cache, you cache some standard stuff, it would be yeah. useful. So it should be okay. Barely. Although, it's getting the Allen Jude barely seal. Yeah. Uh, so it's a Raspberry Pi 2. So that's at least a gig of RAM instead of half, right? I think so. Yeah, think so. so it's marginally good enough. Uh, although at this point, it seems like like many people, you're just trying to find something to use your Raspberry Pi two for. Yeah, it it wouldn't be the best. It, it honestly wouldn't be the best first choice. Right, but yeah, it can work. It's yeah, you know, you yeah. Chatroom says it has it's a useful game. to learn the setup and everything. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and maybe you'll, and if and imagine if you could notice a slight performance improvement with your net connection with a Pi. Imagine if you put something in with a serious cache that was fast and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it also depends how many users you have. You know, if your Soho network's got five users or something, the Pi is probably good enough. Yeah, yeah, kind of along the same lines. Kurt writes in with a PFSense central management question. Mm-hmm. I currently have a few PFSense boxes set up for clients, but others are starting to gain an interest. My only issue right now is that. To manage all of these could start to get painful. Is there any central management module for PFSense or something like this? We've had this question kind of before. Uh, thanks for the feedback. I enjoy the show. Learn so much I know listening. that I think it is the next version of PFSense, or maybe it's the one that just came out. Uh, we'll have a RESTful API so that you could build something like that. Oh, uh, that's I nice. don't know if, if something like that exists yet, but there's... Uh, Either already is or will shortly be an API so that you can you could build something centralized. Yeah, I was looking at what's oh, on. That's slightly more focused on we're a big organization and we have a bunch of PF senses in our in our at our campuses or something. Rather, but you know, it would let you have a more centralized control panel or something. But if each one's a different client, I don't know that you really want to tie them together. Yeah, uh, somebody <laughs> I was reading online, people were like, well, one thing you could do is. Uh, Get local consultants in that area to manage. Like, uh, well, that doesn't make any sense. There's also a monowall CMI that they're looking at porting to PFSense, but there are people have been talking about that for a lot of years. It never yeah. happened. So, but yeah, uh, with the API, you'll be able to remote, basically perform commands on the PFSense without having to use the web interface. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, uh, 
That's you know, not necessarily it, built yet, understood though. a little bit more about what you wanted to do with it. Like, I understand the concept of central management sounds great, but what setting is it that you want right, to is manage? It firewall on policies. What is that? Because those things are always going to be kind of unique by network. Yeah, and if each one is a separate client, then... I could see wanting to manage things like the standard NTP settings, maybe. Um, DNS. Right. I don't, I don't know. Huh. Well, even DNS is usually, you know, if you're yeah. going to forward to your ISPs upstream, if they don't all have the same ISP, then central management doesn't make sense. But, yeah. um, yes, there's uh, PFSense API coming to make more and more of that possible. Cool. All right, so another John writes in. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I have another question for Alan. I figured since it was ZFS-related with multiple different uh, uh, systems related to this, it was the right place to ask. I'm setting up a Z-Pool for my desktop, and I've been agonizing a bit over the setup. I want to be able to run Arch and FreeBSD in the same pool. I plan to set up a mirror of the two 408-gigabyte SSDs from my root and home directories on FreeBSD and Linux, as well as have a mirror of two 2-terabyte hard drives in another VDEV. Currently, I only have one of the SSDs, and I was wondering if it would be okay to start the setup on a single SSD and then attach the other SSDs to turn it into a mirror later. Uh, yes, you can do that. So you just set it up and then zoo pool, attach, pool name, first existing SSD and the new SSD, and it will hook it up and resolver a mirror. Uh, obviously, until you do that, until it's, sorry, until that is finished, so starting from when you don't have the second drive until the resolver is complete, uh, any data corruption will not be repairable. Hmm. right. If you're if that one SSD dies, then you lose everything. So but in general, yes, uh, you know if it's going to be a week or something, you can go ahead. He goes on and says, "I was wondering uh, about the proper setup to be able to use a single pool more than with more than one operating system." So here's what I'm thinking: Would it make sense to do something like this? Linux and FreeBSD are on different data sets, so pool slash Linux, pool slash FreeBSD, other VTEV two terabyte myriads pool slash data and extended two-dip partition on the first SSD with Grub. I was also wondering about the bootloader. I'm going to be setting this up using UEFI, and I guess Grub seems to be the bootloader with the most support on both operating systems. I've been planning to see if things... I've been, I've been seeing some things about how using ZFS boot partition can cause problems, so I was planning on using extended two partition on the first SSD, and then partition the rest, and then mirror the partition with the other SSDs. Okay, so a couple different options there. Uh, first, you're talking about having a pool that has two mirrored SSDs and then separately a VDEV with your two two terabyte drives mirrored and having different data sets. If it's one pool, then the data is striped across all of them and you don't have control over what data goes on which drive. Uh, all the data gets spread across all the drives. So if you want to keep the... Um, most likely, you want to have one pool with the SSDs and a separate pool with the hard drives. Otherwise, your SSDs are going to be slowed down by the hard drives, right? Because every time you write some data, you'll write some of it to the SSDs and some of it to the hard drives. With the new ZFS write throttle, where it uh, controls the writing and, and gives more work to the faster drives, it also means you will just fill your SSDs up uh, while your HDDs aren't, will be filled at a much slower rate. And then once the SSDs are completely full, you'll just write only to the hard drives, and that will really defeat the purpose of having the SSDs. Hmm. So I would have two separate pools and then just decide per data set whether it should be on the SSDs or the hard drives. Um, as far as having the two different operating systems, I don't know anything about root on ZFS with Linux. Um, in general, Grub could work. Depending on your BIOS, because you're using EFI, basically what EFI does is, it's not on your little layout here, but you would have you have a, a, a FAT formatted EFI partition. So it's, it's like, it can be FAT, 16 or FAT32, uh, but it's FAT formatted and it has its type set to EFI instead of you know Microsoft Data or whatever. And on that partition, you have all your different boot blocks. And then, depending on your BIOS, you can just pick which one to boot. So you can have your Linux boot block and your FreeBSD boot block in there in different directories, and then just from the BIOS menu, decide which one you're going to boot. Uh, Although, you know, Grub might give you the nice GUI, and so you put Grub on the EFI and then load either Linux or FreeBSD. Hmm. Um, in general, that would work. I don't know that much about it. Um, hopefully, we'll learn more about it as, as you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see what Ubuntu is going to do as far as uh, ZFS, although it sounds like they might not offer booting from ZFS uh, with their installer. Uh, but... FreeBSD, you can have multiple data sets like you're talking about with different versions of FreeBSD on one machine. So ideally, it would be possible with Linux as well. 
Uh, so it, just to clarify, he says, is it okay for me to mirror an entire drive with the partition of the SSD? Is there a better place for me to put the bootloader so that I can mirror two entire drives, or does it not really matter? It's a partition is a partition. Uh, yeah, what I would do is uh, create partitions. Uh, I would partition the two SSDs identically, and so just you could just not use the small partition, you know, one gig partition or whatever you do for your slash boot on the second SSD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was FreeBSD, I would mirror them, but okay. On Linux, I wouldn't. <laughs> sounds like quite the setup, though. Uh, the other option you have is uh, putting your Linux bootloader on SSD one and your FreeBSD bootloader, like GPT ZFS boot, on disk two, and then using your BIOSes, you know, you press F eight during boot and select the or F eleven, depending on your BIOS. Get the boot select menu, and then if you select SSD one, it boots Linux. If you select SSD two, it boots FreeBSD. And either way, it mounts the same Z pool. Hmm. Um. That is how I run my uh, laptop uh, that I do for conferences. It has uh, Windows on the first drive uh, with EFI, and it does that uh, because I needed that to record interviews because that's the, you know, the um, wirecast and everything. And then the second drive, which is actually the SSD, when I select it from the BIOS menu, uh, it boots FreeBSD. Uh, in that particular case, it does it with uh, legacy, but it could do EFI now. Uh, the other advantage to that one is if you're traveling with a laptop and the custom people decide they want to see you boot the laptop, having it boot Windows by default unless you press buttons that nobody knows to press. Much more reassuring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, right. Look, What's it's all just that Windows hacker 8, code whatever. going across the screen? Yeah. When it just boots Windows 8 instead, they're like, yeah, okay. We've Not seen that, that actually, before. They've never actually made me boot my laptop. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah. I've heard of it happening. It's nice when they recognize it. That's yeah. nice. Exactly. All right. So we need your email. Especially when you have like three laptops in your bag. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so please do send them in. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose the TechSnap dropdown and get your questions in here. We'd love to answer them. We do need some more. Uh, so that way we have a good feedback segment for next week. We only decided to feature three this week because we're running low. So please go over to the contact page or just email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or like I mentioned earlier, the subreddit techsnap.reddit. Dot com. That's all the feedback for this week. That means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. The roundup of stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still won't talk about them and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links come from our subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. I think this first one did. It's like the data transfer stats of the Super Bowl. It's kind of interesting. 400 miles of data cable, 12,000 network ports, 1,300 Wi-Fi access points, 1,200 Bluetooth beacons, uh, 40 gigabits of available bandwidth at the Levi Stadium. From 6 a.m. to 11 p.m., uh, fans use 9.3 terabytes of data on the network. Uh, well, say so they say fans, but if you scroll back up there, they say 12,000 network ports, mm-hmm. but only 1,300 Wi-Fi access points. So what were the other 10,000 network ports for? I don't know. They say media. I don't think any fans were plugged into physical Ethernet jack. They said the media used 453 gigabytes, so like they were tracking them separately. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, the media only used they, 500 gigabytes? Yeah. And fans used 10 no, terabytes. That's what they say. Uh, th- they say the Wi-Fi sustained 3 gigabits for more than 4 hours on Sunday at its peak. Yes, so that makes a little more sense, but I guess... What's that? Three gigabits times minutes uh, for how do they figure? I don't know exactly. I don't know. But I I, I wouldn't be surprised if the data is somewhat accurate. They must be having a measurement. Gigabytes. What's gigabits? They say something too. It's noted how Levi Stadium, they say, is the first venue to transfer 10 bytes of data over Wi Fi network. The first venue. Terabytes, you mean? Yeah. I'm getting my terabytes mixed up today. Yeah. Um, so if there's 400 megabytes a second. <laughs> that's that many per minute. Alan, are you math on the show hour again? Times four hours. Bytes, kilobytes, megabytes, gigabytes. Okay. I was thinking that three gigabits per second wouldn't add up, but it does. So over three gigabits per second for four hours is about five and a half terabytes. Hmm. Hmm. Damn. Everybody's got to do selfies. Yeah. So what I really do, I, I would like to see some stats on incoming versus outgoing, because mm. I imagine they combine the two. Mm. 
But <laughs> what I do wonder is how many people were streaming the Super Bowl from the seats at the Super Bowl? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, very much. I like the like you that people used to bring the radio. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about how complex systems can fail. What's this about? Yes, this the is paper. just a, a paper. It was interesting. It was pointed out how sysadmins should probably read this. Or yeah, also and don't build a super complex system. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. It's usually the best way to build a reliable system is to get rid of as much complexity as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know a lot about this next story, but uh, this is coming from ZDNet. Hackers leak thousands of FBI and DHS employees' details. Uh, I don't yeah, know. I saw like 20,000 FBI agents, apparently. Yeah, 20,000 FBI employees and 9,000 Homeland Security employees. Motherboard first received word of the hack on Sunday, uh, along with access to the database. On Sunday, a Twitter account with a pro-Palestine agenda reportedly published some data, including screenshots of, the, of, of an FBI computer that the hackers allegedly gained access to. They make good on the promise and release the rest of the information online. So there you go. Yeah, the, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police Officers apparently thought some data was stolen from their computers as well. Hmm. So what's this? Oh, oh, oh. This is pretty. This is yeah, a visualization. So uh, Norse isn't the only people that can make fancy visualizations. Although actually in this set, Norse is one of them. <laughs> this is uh, a visualization. This one. Uh, I remember when we covered this when it actually happened uh, yes. quite a while ago. This is a visualization of a denial of service attack against the VLC download sites. Right. Awfully and pretty. See. Yeah. Huh. And then if you scroll down, there's more. Oh, okay. Ooh, so Here is a, uh, a server, a voice over IP server defending itself by creating fake honeypots to lure the attackers off into. Because uh, real calls won't fall for the honeypots, but the attackers will. And then they can block anybody that falls for the honeypot. That is a sci-fi graphic if I've ever seen one. Mm-hmm. That's nice. And, and there's Norse. Norse one, you yeah. just ignore that. Yeah. yeah. And then here is one where uh, Pakistan try, uh, was trying to block YouTube and they accidentally leaked the route to the internet, causing uh, people who are closer to Pakistan than the nearest uh, YouTube server to be routed to Pakistan. Mm. And this is uh, YouTube fighting back by publishing more routes. Wow. That's a neat visualization to watch, too. Yeah, it's, yeah there's the two of them there. Yeah, YouTube fights back. That's really cool. Good find out. Good collection of uh, visualizations. Yeah. Some of them we've seen before. Some of them we haven't. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a real quick note. Uh, Google's going to st- start rejecting Flash-based advertising in a push for HTML5 and also their new, uh, their new standard that I'm forgetting the name of right now. Yeah, so I think this is mostly just consider- consisting of converting Flash into this other thing. Mm-hmm. Down with Flash ads, though. I'm all about that. I'm all about yeah. that. All right, give me the uh, bad news. I, what are they going to do with the uh, those giant full-page ads for cars every time you go to like a mainstream media website? Smack the monkey. Smack the monkey. Those ones too. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's almost, for me, it's always like a Ford or Chevy ad basically. <laughs> okay, give me the bad news about these uh, Safeway self-checkout skimmers. Yeah, so this, this is a thing that sits over top of the self-checkout uh, credit card terminal and it reads your PIN number and your card stripe and all that so what strikes me is they must have gone and got a custom shell just for those the units that the, the units well, that they use at that safeway it's you know there are only a couple of companies that make these credit card terminals yeah, so, a yes, they just targeted the verifone ones which i think is what one or two of the stores over here use as well uh-huh. uh and basically yes they picked a common one uh built some of these shells and then you just sneak in and stick it on over top of the uh the legitimate one, and uh, you're good to go. Hmm. And uh, now let me just catch a there. bunch more details there. <laughs> he always he always pulls on it a little bit to see if there's a shell before he uses it. Right, now. give it a yeah, give it a little tug and see if it falls apart. Yeah, uh, this one was popular in the subreddit. The U.S. can't ban encryption because it's a global phenomenon. Now that's according to a yeah, pretty. We- We've seen them uh, try to do this with what, uh, MP3s and movies and lots of other yeah. things, and we've seen that they just don't care that it's a global phenomenon. That's true. Uh, they, they don't care what country you're in. They're going to try to prosecute you. The it. Harvard study was titled, A Worldwide Survey of Encryption Products Aimed to Catalog All the Encryption Products Available Online Today. Researcher, researchers identified 546 encryption products from developers outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I'm it's, glad to see it's coming from Harvard. For because of the old crypto export laws, there's OpenBSD is always compiled in Canada, not in the U.S. Because it didn't apply, you, you know, you could export better than DES encryption. Hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, 
I remember. I think you'll just end up if, if the U.S. were to try to outlaw encryption, you would just see more of this. Everybody would compile everything in Amsterdam since they've just claimed that uh, they're not go- or uh, the Netherlands said that they're not going to interfere with encryption and gave the uh, Open SSL Foundation a bunch of money. And so, you know, moving a bunch of the build farms there doesn't really change anything, does it? Yeah. We haven't, we haven't talked about Kohl's for a while. Have we talked about Kohl's having problems before on the show? Now finally Kohl's enters the TechSnap cast yes. of characters. So this one is really a new interesting type of e-commerce fraud. So normally the e-commerce fraud consists of go there, buy something, and have it shipped to the bad guy or a mule in order to cash it out. So this one works a little differently. They find people who already have like uh, frequent customer or loyalty accounts with mm-hmm, Kohl's, mm-hmm. and they hack those. And they change the email address on it so that it goes to them. And they go to the Kohl's online store and buy a bunch of stuff. But they actually have it shipped to the person whose account they hacked. Because they don't actually want the merchandise. Oh. Right? Kohl's fraud protection system is going to prevent shipping the merchandise to somewhere that doesn't match sure. you know, the account or whatever. So what they do is they ship a whole bunch of stuff and Kohl's has a thing where they give you a $10, $10 of Kohl's cash mm. for every $50 you spend. So they rack up as much Kohl's cash as they can and then redeem that for things like gift cards that they can turn into cash. Huh. Or other items they could go and buy at a physical store and then uh, sell on the black market or whatever. So they don't actually want the merchandise they're buying. They're just doing it to get the loyalty points to cash those out because they're easier to cash out than, say, <laughs> whatever they else they sell at Kohl's. Classic. That's a good one, Alan. Good find. Yeah. So this one actually comes in from uh, a reader of the Krebs blog who this happened to. Uh, you know, She got an email saying, hey, your email address with Kohl's has been changed. She was like, that was weird. And so she went and couldn't log in. And then she was like, tried the new email address from the notification email she got. But with her old password, and it let her in, because mm. the bad guys hadn't changed the password, only the email address. Uh, and then, you know, she uh, saw what was going on and was, like, very surprised that they were shipping the stolen merchandise to her. Yeah. Because she's like... I didn't expect that. What's the point? What's the point of that? Because mm-hmm. wouldn't they want the merchandise? That's the whole right. point of, of e-commerce fraud. It's, well, it turns out there's another way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but she managed to get in contact with Coles and uh, have them cancel the orders so that, you know, a truckload of stuff didn't jump at her house. But <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, aspect of e-commerce. Uh, part of the problem seems to be that Coles gives you the credit as soon as you place the order instead of waiting for, you know, once they've actually shipped it or something to give you the points. Hmm, that's nice. So I add this one to the wall of shame. Uh, there's a bug in the Linux kernel that corrupts TCP IP data when sent to Docker containers. The Linux kernel has a bug that causes containers that use a virtual Ethernet devices for network routing, such as Docker or Kubernetes or Google Container Engine, uh, to not check for TCP checksums. This results in an application's incorrectly receiving corrupt data in a number of situations, such as bad networking hardware. The bug dates back at, le- at least three years and is present in kernels as far back as the researchers tested. Their patch has been reviewed and accepted in the Linux kernel and is currently being backported to stable releases as far back as 3.14. Uh, Do- Docker's default na- networking is not affected, and in practice, Google Container Engine is not affected. But it's been around for a while, and people, and even though all the c- containers in use, people haven't really noticed this particular issue of not checking for uh, well, it's, checksums. I, I, yeah, the checksum being bad doesn't happen very often other than right. you know, a bad nick or a faulty cable. Yeah. But that's a pretty embarrassing bug. Yeah, yeah. People don't think Google Container is or Google Compute Engine is uh, actually. Well, this, this is saying Google Container Engine, which is different than Google Compute Engine. Google right. Compute Engine is like right, EC2. Right, 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 right. I didn't even know there was a Google Container Engine. I was actually, what's that? <laughs> so tell me ah. about tell me about Amber. Yes. So Amber is a new tool f- uh, from some developers at Harvard that uh, specifically designed for blogs. They have uh, Drupal and WordPress plugins available for it. And basically, when you link to something outside of your site, uh, depending on your configuration, it will download a copy of the page from the site you're linking to. So that if that site ever goes away, your blog can continue to work. I like that. Uh, And also, if you don't want to store a bunch of stuff on your server, it can fall back to using the uh, archive.org Wayback Machine uh, to get the old version. That's nice. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, with the amount of stuff where 
the things you're linked to just don't exist anymore. Yes. Like, how many blogs have you come across from like, you know, yeah. now the blogging is more than 10 years old. You yeah. find this I'd hate blog to, with well, the answer to the question and then it links to some page that the We have show notes that go back years or, now. There's no guarantee exactly. those links still work in those show notes and that's a big bummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, this is so, it seems like a cool solution to that problem. Yeah. That is really neat. Link in the uh, roundup if you guys want to check that out towards the bottom of the roundup links. Last link in the roundup this week. Uh, just kind of interesting as we are kicking off 2016, revenue per, per employee in 2015 for some major tech companies. Yahoo made 419000 per employee, Twitter 462 Microsoft 789 Google 1.1 mil, Facebook 1.4 mil, and Apple 2 mil per employee. Kind of interesting to see Yahoo down there at the bottom at 419 Yikes. Well, more interesting to see that Yahoo's still making as much money as Twitter. Like, it's revenue per employee, but... You know, everybody seems to think that Yahoo doesn't make any money anymore. But mm. if they're still making $400,000 per employee, that's not bad. It's not bad. You wish they'd be a little bit further along than Twitter, though, for being around so long. Sure. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting 2016. Well, it would be more interesting to see the graph of this over the last 10 years. Yeah, it would. That would that's for sure. All right, Alan, is there anything else we need to cover in today's episode of the TechSnap program? Uh, no, I think that's about it. All right, well, I'll invite you guys to join us live next week. We do it at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. That's a Thursday over at jblive.tv. You can get it converted to your time at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And don't forget about that contact page so we can get your questions. And the RSS feeds are linked on every single episode. So if you want to subscribe weekly and just get the TechSnap program automatically, links are there to do that with your favorite podcast client. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week. 